0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another week on The Debrief. This week, Pope Francis publishes a new document focusing on St. Therese of Lisieux, then the latest from the Synod, and then a new book, Credo. Is it a problematic traditionalist catechism? Hey, Mike, how you been? We've been off for a week and now we're back.
1: Yeah, it's been a an incredibly busy couple of weeks um, with the start of the Synod and a whole bunch of other things coming down the pike. Um, as you know, where Peter is, we published a two part series on uh, focusing on a female adult survivor of um, grooming by her parish priest and and uh, an alleged sexual assault. Um, obviously making sure that that article was written properly and fairly and um, you know, gave her voice as well as allowing the diocese an opportunity to respond. And that took up most of my week last week. And on top of that, the Synod has been going on. Um, the dubia issues are still ongoing. The attacks from the uh, traditionalist movement have been ongoing. Um, we had a couple of issues when it came to our coverage of traditional, the traditionalist movement. Anyway, all of this has been going on and then, and then Pope Francis drops a brand new exhortation. It's been so much going on, but I am glad that we are finally able to get together today, this afternoon.
0: Agreed. Agreed. So we're going to breeze through the first two points, which are really important because you've pulled together a, uh 19 slide walkthrough of this this problematic catechism so let's get into this friends welcome to the debrief it's our uh we do our best to make it a weekly show where we talk about news questions and controversies facing the catholic church i'm dominic de the founder of smart catholics
1: and i am mike lewis the co-founder and editor of the website where peter is
0: so let's start with this new apostolic exhortation yesterday pope francis published a uh an exhortation entitled, C'est la Confiance, it's the confidence dedicated to St. Therese of the Child Jesus and the Holy Face. Uh, You wrote a reflection on it last night. I haven't got a chance to read it yet. Maybe you can tell us your impressions.
1: Yeah, so just a little bit of background, because I know actually we forecast this back when Pope Francis went to the hospital back in June. Um, If you remember, he went to the hospital Tuesday, June 6th, I believe, came back after a couple of hours, delivered his audience Wednesday, June 7th, and then the news came out that he had headed straight to the hospital after his audience for surgery. Um, during that audience, his focus was, uh, well, first of all, he was talking about mission, and his focus was on Theresa Blissou, who as a, um, and it's funny because she has a lot of different names. She has um, of the of the Child Jesus. She has uh, The Little Flower. Um, you know, she's she's beloved. She's a doctor of the church, despite living only 24 years and, and never leaving her Carmelite monastery. And Pope Pius XI, after canonizing her, named her and um, St. Francis Xavier as co-patrons of the missions. Now, St. Francis Xavier, obviously, he is one of the world's most famous missionaries in, in the history of the church. He went to India evangelized there then from india he went to japan then he tried to get to china but he got ill and 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 didn't make it there but the number of baptisms the number of people that he evangelized i mean it's one of those things he was great friends with with saint ignatius of loyola the founder of the jesuits and at their parting they never they knew they would never see each other again because saint francis was just out there he's he's a bold bold evangelist he's an inspiration there's a great documentary um, that i think you can find on youtube it's about an hour long it's uh narrated by liam neeson um it was produced by jesuits so um jeremy zippel who uh is an american jesuit and he used to work for america magazine he was one of he he was the filmmaker um anyway that's saint francis xavier that's not what this exhortation was about so a couple of things that make this a little bit unique was elevated to an apostolic exhortation, which is the same level as, well, we had La Deum just a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if two apostolic exhortations have come out in the same month. Both of them are very short. Both of them are under 10,000 words, I think, in the seven to 8,000 word range. Um, but it's also the same type of document that Amoris mm-hmm. Laetitia was, um, Christus Vivit. um Evangelii Gaudium, which remains one of my favorite, probably the number one document of Pope Francis. Still, it was his first apostolic exhortation. Although I think that this beautiful little letter, or I guess exhortation, about um, Saint Therese uh, might might be a, a close number two. And actually, maybe because of its length, um, one of the things I wrote in my in my article was that. As as the uh, exhortation wore on, I started to think to myself, you know, this reminds me a lot of of Evangelii Gaudium, uh, and then I think in paragraph forty eight, Pope Francis writes, you know, I, I spoke about, you know, the mission of the Christian and evangelization in Evangelii Gaudium, and I want to repropose that right here, right now for you. Here's the big question: How? Is a woman in her early 20s Mm -hmm. from France without a big university education, um, without a huge theological formation. How is she the patron of the missions? Mm -hmm. She's never gone on a mission. You know, she traveled, actually, she traveled to Rome as a teenager, but once she was in the cloister, she was there. Well, the tradition of the church has been that the One of the main goals of the cloistered life, the the, the consecrated contemplative life, is to assist the church with their prayers. And St. Therese, um, even though she is often portrayed as a very um, quiet, pious, perfect for a prayer card, you know, beautiful young nun who is undergoing... Um, you know is praying her rosary and doing doing her little things um she was united with the missions she saw herself as a missionary she saw herself as participating in that mission and mm-hmm. this is what Pope Francis wanted to emphasize he wanted to go beyond what what besides these nice things that you know the the prayer the sacrifice the offering up the the devotion what Besides the piety, that not that there's anything wrong with those things, but what distinguishes St. Therese from other saints? What does she bring to the church that other saints don't have? And the mm-hmm. term that he used is confidence. Hmm. Now, it's it's funny because when we think of religious confidence, you know, one of the first things that came to my mind was the idea of, I don't know if you remember back in 2012 when the world was going to end. And Harold Camping, the the you know the radio minister, had, was so confident that the world was going to end on a certain date that he and his followers got rid of all their belongings, um, and they were confident. And then they were made to look foolish. Um, we can remember the the ends of some pretty scary cults in you know um, started by Americans in in the last forty or fifty years. You think of Jonestown. Um, you think of the the Hale Bopp comet um, community. They were confident that they were going to cross over into something else. This is not what Pope Francis is talking about. Um, Pope Francis is talking about rather than putting your confidence in ideas, in your assumptions, in your ideologies, in your attachments, on the way you think things should turn out or the way things should be. No, you put your total confidence in god's love and mercy and that is what saint therese did um I, I like one passage where at a he talks about at a certain point saint therese was unable to receive the eucharist every day and i don't know uh, you know obviously nowadays it's it's standard practice for nuns in cloisters to have a priest come and give them uh, you know, a private mass and, and to give them the Eucharist and, and confession, uh, on a daily basis. Um, but he talks about how, uh, Therese, even though it was devastating to her because it was what God was doing in her life at that moment, she accepted it as a gift from God. And she asked God to make her a tabernacle when she wasn't able to receive. Um, and I, I wrote in the article that it seemed to me almost a mild rebuke of some of the people during um, during COVID who were demanding that, you know, we must yeah, have access to mass. We must, mm-hmm. you know, I must be able to receive communion on the tongue. You know, all these, it has to be their way on their time, according to the way that they want it. And mm-hmm. I mean, he didn't make any reference to this, so you can blame me. You don't blame him. But um, I, it, it, it just struck me that this was, um, maybe a little bit of like even spiritual things, even good things, mm-hmm. if we develop unhealthy attachments to them, mm-hmm. they can lead to uh, loss of faith, despair or sinfulness, like pride or or um, the false kind of prop, uh, confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I just, it's a short document. We'll provide the link, um, take a look at my article If you want, you know, it's just sort of my my initial thoughts on one reading of this short document. We read in one sitting. It's very clear, and it brings uh, it brings a lot of her witness to light. So that's my that's what I have to say about that. And I hope you read it after this uh, after we record this, Dominic.
0: (laughs) I will. So the Senate is now entering its second full week. Do you have any inside information about that?
1: Not really. Um, <laughs> all right. Next so it's, um, let me, let me just to give you. um. So obviously all these other things are going on. All of these where Peter is type things are going on like this book, mm-hmm. credo, like various things that are going on. Uh, I mean, EWTN different people trying to distract from the synod. It mm-hmm. seems to me that the full fledged um, this year, the fear that is being spread during the Synod is straight up fear. It's yeah. trying, you know, this message that they're trying to undermine the faith. It seems that in the last few days, in various Synod participants have leaked information anonymously, whether, you know, whether it's true or not. Um, and, and they've been pretty good on the whole of um, being, I- adhering to the silence that's been, or to the secrecy that, that's that been requested of them. Um, so take everything with a grain of salt, but apparently in the last few days, they've been talking about some of the hot button issues. Um, mm-hmm. I saw a report that women deacons was one of the subjects that was supposed to be discussed today. Um, within the last couple of days, I know that they talked about LGBT issues. Um, and I know that Paolo Ruffini, who's the, the head of Vatican communications came out and said that the main rule or the main Consensus that was reached was that homophobia is wrong. Um, obviously, how do we minister to people who either live a certain lifestyle or 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 who are um, who are homosexual, gay, lesbian? Um, how we want to be inclusive, we want to be welcoming. How do we do that as a church while preserving our our beliefs by preserving? Uh, the doctrine of the church so um mm-hmm. you know pray for the success of the synod and like um saint therese i would advise that um you have confidence that god will provide in, you know in light of the synod for for coverage i would uh recommend inside the vatican podcast uh done mm-hmm. by america magazine and as well as jesuitical um so i i found those I found Jesuiticals coverage of what is a synod and what's supposed to happen during the synod and those kinds of things. I found those very helpful. Um, I've found Colleen Dully and um, Jerry O'Connell is my favorite podcast besides the ones that I'm in uh, inside the Vatican. They've always given really good insight about what Pope Francis is up to. They've cut through some of the some of the rumors and they've added a lot of needed clarification. So I will um, add the links. I know that I'm a subscriber to America's digital edition. Um, it's $5 a month, but for new subscribers, apparently it's $1 a month with access to everything. Now, a lot of it is free. Your favorite podcast app has these two podcasts, but I would recommend that. So,
0: Good deal. Good deal. Well, talking about confidence and then fear, um, let's talk about this Credo document. So last month, Sophia Institute Press published a book by Bishop Athanasius Schneider entitled Credo Compendium of the Catholic Faith. And according to the publisher's description of Credo, this book is significant in that for the first time in over 50 years, a Catholic bishop has published his own complete and authoritative presentation of the faith, what to believe, how to live, and how to pray as Christ taught. Dems fight in words. I mean, the publisher also says that, Credo, is a comprehensive summary of Christian doctrine written for our time by a living successor of the apostles. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been following your Twitter <laughs> over the last couple of days, and uh, you have another take on this, and you've put together maybe an overview of some slides or something. Can you just... What are your, your initial takes on this document? What are your impressions?
1: So this is just a little bit of an overview. It's it's interesting because Bishop Athanasius Schneider is one of the names that has he he's he's you know he he goes on the speaker tour. He's there with with Cardinal Burke and with um Eric Sammons. The the you know he's one of he's one of the well-known um traditionalist speakers. He opposes Pope Francis. He's done it publicly, Um, Mm -hmm. but a lot of people don't know who he is um, Mm -hmm. in the mainstream church. But there are a few reasons why this is troubling to me, and uh, this book is troubling to me, and then there are some facts to help people get up to speed with precisely why I believe this book is is troubling. Um, First, who is Bishop Athanasius Schneider? So he is an auxiliary bishop in Astana, which is in Kazakhstan. It's a majority Muslim country, um, and these statistics, as of 2013, the archdiocese—it's an archdiocese—it um, has 60,000 Catholics, which make up 1.6 percent of the population of the archdiocese. There are 34 parishes and 17 priests. So, obviously, kind of like Mongolia, it's a—it's a wide swath of land. Um, so I, I, assume that that's the reason why they need an auxiliary bishop. Um, most places don't, um, you know, with, by comparison, I think Tyler has 52,000, um, Catholics. So, and that's obviously not an archdiocese and it's considered a very small diocese, no auxiliary bishop. So he's sort of in this, you know, country in, in Asia where, um, there aren't many Catholics, and yet, somehow, he is a household name among a certain subset of Catholics.
0: Right. So,
1: um, a little bit more about him: he has been an open supporter of the Society of Saint Pius X, which is that movement that was, uh, you know, is it, in an irregular situation with the Church. It was founded by the French Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre in the 1970s. He and four other bishops of the movement. Uh, well, four other members of the movement were uh, excommunicated by Pope John Paul II in 1988 when he ordained them, uh, these priests, as bishops without the permission of the church. He died in, I believe, 1991. This schism or or break between the mainstream church were not in full communion. The Catholic Church has not recognized their priests or bishops as um, exercising any kind of, legitimate ministry in the church although in uh, around the year of mercy which was i believe 2015 2016 pope francis did grant faculties to these priests to validly hear confessions and he arranged so that they're uh they can get um validly and licitly married in the church up until that point these were bishops and chapels that were operating without any authorization from the church, and therefore they had no bishop that would grant them faculties to give absolution validly or to marry couples validly. Um, So for decades, members are uh, you know, they'd have their weddings there, they'd they'd confess their sins there, and there were questions about the validity of those sacraments. So Pope Francis rectified that Naturally, they acted like, and and we've covered the SSPX before, but you give them an inch and they take a mile. So they acted like that this confirmed that their sacraments were valid all all along and that they, you know, anyway. For some reason, um, in 2015, uh, Bishop Schneider conducted what he claims was an official visitation of two SSPX seminaries on behalf of the Holy See. He told the traditionalist blog Rorate Chele in 2015 to my knowledge, there are no weighty reasons in order to deny the clergy and the faithful of the SSPX the official canonical recognition. Meanwhile, they should be accepted as they are. Now, this is in contrast to what Pope John Paul II said about them, Um, Pope Benedict, uh, Cardinal Mueller, even Cardinal Burke. They don't recognize their local bishops. They uh, they don't recognize a lot of Vatican II. They think Vatican II is heretical. They think the Pope is heretical. Um, they won't. Uh, they don't even like it when their members go to a Latin mass that's done in communion with the Catholic Church, like the Fraternal Society of Saint Peter or a diocesan um, Latin mass. Like they just. They are separate. They're their own, they have their own world. It would be nice if they would reunify, but it doesn't seem that the current leadership has any intention to submit to Vatican II or to accept the licity of the of the reforms of Vatican II in, in the liturgy. It's uh it's a sticky situation. Now, I have never seen any confirmation other than from SSPX sources and other traditionalist sources. That this was really a Vatican-approved um, visitation. Uh, unfortunately, it seems that people just take this on on his word and and assume that he did. But I've looked really hard into it. There's no uh, there's no public information about who authorized it in the Vatican, what department he was doing it for, um, other than coming coming out and saying that everything that they um, you know that they're doing is great and they should be welcomed back into the church. I haven't seen any signs of that. So that's um that's certainly that's certainly a concern to me. Now um there more recently he's he's said other things. He's um continued to defend the SSPX. He's said that they um aren't in schism which is A probable opinion, but he's adamantly against it. He's even defended their opposition to the Pope because coming into communion right now, according to him, is not a good idea because of Pope Francis. And then in 2022, he described their founder, Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, as a prophet for our time. So, just to give you a background about his ideology, other things that he's known for outspoken anti vaxxer, he wrote and he signed several manifestos um about the obligation to resist covid vaccine he repu- the covid vaccine he repudiated uh the the cdf he repudiated the pontifical institute for life he repudiated pope francis basically he said we have an obligation not to get vaccinated in contrast to what the official church has said he's accused pope francis explicitly of heresy several times um the the one that comes to mind personally is the same one that um that bishop um uh strickland signed the uh against the liturgical document does it desiderio desideravi we've written two responses to that it's basically based on poor reading comprehension and desperation um they say that pope francis has violated um the infallible teaching of the of the council of trent but they even cite the wrong scripture passage it's it's a long story um, he's a regular speaker at traditionalist events, including uh, the Catholic Identity Conference, which takes place in Pittsburgh every year, and the Rome Life Forum, which is sponsored by uh, Voice of the Family, which, to the best of my knowledge, it's, uh, and maybe you know better than I do, it's a kind of a spin-off of tradition, family, and property. Um, it's every year in Rome. Um, I don't know if he's scheduled this year, but he, you know, Strickland's going there this year, Vigano's spoken at it, Burke has spoken at it. It's, it's a who's who. Um, he, uh, you know, it, every week or so you'll see either an interview from him or a new manifesto show up in Site News or One Peter Five or Crisis Magazine. And also he's co-authored, as you know, you've seen many of these manifestos, uh, come out from Cardinal Burke or Vigano or and and he's a co-signer regularly mm-hmm. he wrote one he, he's also collaborated I, he wrote one jointly with cardinal burke a couple of years ago so um just to sort of paint like this is so this is the person who has decided to write a compendium i guess is one of the words they've used that's that's going to spell out the entire catholic faith okay well we know where he's coming from This book, Credo, it has endorsements from Bishop Joseph Strickland. At this point, that shouldn't be a a surprise. But also, it has um, an endorsement from Cardinal Robert Serra and from Dr. Scott Hahn. Um, I have written in the past about all three of these individuals, um, and I have pointed to their seeming increasing radicalization. Um, I've got a. I've gotten a lot of flack, especially for the latter two, who I have been assured support Pope Francis and are thoroughly mainstream. But in my opinion, um, I think, especially with the endorsement of this book, uh, it's clear that that's not what's going on. This is, I think, the reason why this book the most dangerous part about this book. Um, Sophia Institute Press is located in the Diocese of Manchester in New Hampshire, and somehow they were able to acquire the imprimatur of the diocesan bishop. You write a Catholic book, a book on theology, a book on doctrine, catechism, catechesis manual, um, if you want an official certification that the book is orthodox, um, you get what is called you uh, you either go to the local bishop of the publisher or the author. Um, so, for example, Pedro Gabriel um, was able to get his local bishop or the bishop's delegate to um, give it a nihil obstat, which means um, I don't know what the translation is but it means it's free from error it's basically a lot of times bishops are too busy to read every book that that comes into them so they usually give it to a priest in their diocese who reads it gives it a a pass there there are no errors in there or if there are errors they'll write up a report and then um the imprimatur basically says uh let it be printed now it's not necessarily an endorsement of the book it's an acknowledgement that the book is free from doctrinal error Unfortunately, I think in this case, now there's no uh, Neil Obstadt on this book. I don't know if the bishop reviewed it himself. I don't know if he just granted it an imprimatur because it was written by a brother bishop that he didn't know much about. I don't know the story. I have uh, written a couple of emails and filled out the Contact Us page on the diocese requesting that Bishop Lebowski, um Retracts the imprimatur because with this on the book, it makes it a lot more difficult to challenge. They'll just say, "Look, the local bishop says it's orthodox." My hope is that he just—it was just a case of neglect. I don't know. So, here is the first problematic statement. Is what I saw. Uh, this was posted on Twitter by um, Tom's Digest. He's a an anonymous. I don't. I don't know. I, I guess he's a mischief maker. I don't want to say troll on Twitter, but he has a lot of interesting things to say about the goings on in the church. But um, number two hundred twenty-four, and I have the Kindle edition, which doesn't correspond to the print edition, and the numbering is all mixed up. But these are screenshots from. I think. I think the numbers restart in different sections. So you know, if you do a word search, you'll find it. Um, But this question, is the dignity of the human person rooted in his creation in God's image and likeness? And Bishop Schneider's response is astounding. This was true for Adam, but with original sin, the human person lost his resemblance and dignity in the eyes of God. He recovers this dignity through baptism and keeps it as long as he does not sin mortally. And then the follow-up is, uh, then human dignity is not the same in all persons. No, the human dignity, the human person loses his dignity in proportion to his free choice of error or evil, and he compares Hitler and St. Francis of Assisi. Now, I've been told that this is maybe reflective of Thomas Aquinas, but it ignores the last one hundred and twenty years of Catholic teaching about human dignity. Um, just one example out of many in the um, Catechism of the Catholic Church. Paragraph seventeen hundred. The dignity of the human person is rooted in his creation in the image and likeness of God. Um, yes, there are ways that we can grow, but the the dignity of the human person is intrinsic and inviolable. And this is this is taught very clearly in the documents of Vatican II, and it's taught very clearly in Evangeli, um, Evangelium Vitae, which was uh, Pope. John Paul II's uh, 1994-1995 document on the gospel of life, Um, it's like he's ignored the last 60 years of theological development so that he can say that unbaptized people don't have human dignity. Um, And and there are other passages in official church documents since then that do say that all people have equal human dignity. Um, So... My jaw dropped when I saw this. So this is when I shelled out the, I saw the screenshot. I shelled out the $9.99 so I could read it so you don't have to but just to confirm like well what else is this guy up to. And that is the exact same passage. So that's great. Um okay. This here is a direct repudiation of an explicit repudiation of the documents of the Second Vatican Council. Talking about Um, the creation of man. He writes, then man is not a creature that the creator has willed for his own sake. And he writes, no, although man should never be used as a mere means to an end, the notion that man exists simply for his own sake is the self-referential error of anthropocentrism. And he condemns Immanuel Kant and it goes on like that. His footnote says, the Council of Vatican II's document Gallium et Spes 24, made the ambiguous affirmation that man is the only creature on earth that God has willed for its own sake. So he's saying this this statement from the Vatican II document is ambiguous, but he also puts a clear no, which means that it's, he thinks is wrong. Um, the, uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 357. Of all visible creatures, only man is able to know and love his creator. He is the only creature on earth that God has willed for its own sake. I mean,
0: honestly, I can't see the ambiguity. You know, oh uh, yeah, that that <laughs> word is a favorite uh, used in this particular community. You can throw that at anything to try to, to get away with all sorts. Oh yeah, of-
1: and, and you see it about like the the role of the papacy when they talk about Vatican um, Vatican One. They're like, oh, well, when it's interpreted incorrectly. And it's like, but this is what it says. And your interpretation does not align with what it says. Um, I I mean, I I think that this, he is using polite language to smooth over the harshness of his own beliefs and his own dissent. We go... Then what happens to infants who die without baptism? And he says, having committed no personal sin, it seems unfitting that unbaptized infants should suffer the fate of those who are damned. And then he says, um, a widespread theological opinion holds that their exclusion from the beatific vision may not necessarily entail pain and suffering. Now, in other words, what he is doing is he is just, oh yeah, they don't get to see the uh the the beatific vision they are not there's no chance of their salvation but you know maybe they they go to limbo maybe they they only have some pangs or or whatever um a peaceful eternity of of purely natural goods in other words he's affirming limbo and saying that the debate is how bad limbo really is or you know how bad is the hell that unbaptized babies go to is basically uh what he's talking about here um, which goes against, of course, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which talks about the hope of salvation for unbaptized infants and the International Theological Commission document from 2007 that was signed by Pope Benedict and given his full approval and spoken about by Pope Benedict that this is where the church is now. Schneider is just pushing that out of the way and let's go back to uh, pre-Vatican two times. hmm Okay, so here's another one. Um, Canonizations of saints. Now, the way he frames this is kind of interesting. Um, Are canonizations of saints undoubtedly infallible ex-cathedra statements? Well, are they ex-cathedra statements? Those are usually about faith and morals. Really, the, the, the core question, the one that he should be asking, are canonizations of saints be considered infallible if he should even ask it at all because this is pure speculation on his part it's not doctrine but he says no um and basically he's saying that there's a widespread theological opinion okay so this is what this is where my my mind is going because i'm starting to sense an influence here Mm -hmm. um the person that most vociferously advances this hypothesis is Peter Kwasniewski. When Pope Paul VI was canonized, he wrote a lengthy essay saying why we should not and cannot regard Paul VI as a saint. Um, he published a book, Are Canonizations Infallible? As I went through this book, I started to to notice certain bugbears that bore a resemblance to uh, the, the outspoken traditionalist, Peter Kwasniewski, who we've written about plenty of times. I have a sense that maybe he was involved in the writing of this based on the topics that were chosen. But let's continue. Here are some other problematic statements. What was the key difference between Vatican II and all previous ecumenical councils? So he's setting Vatican II aside, saying it's totally different. The previous ecumenical councils formulated the doctrine of faith and morals in articles with the clearest possible assertions and in concise canons with anathemas to guarantee an unambiguous understanding of the true doctrine and protect the faithful from heretical influences within or outside the church. Vatican II, however, chose not to do this. Well, first of all... my understanding is that some of the early councils we don't even have the acts from them or we have like one or two paragraphs or we have a saint or a pope having written a summary of the council that happened 20 years earlier in terms of what was offered to the faithful the riches of the teaching the number of bishops the extent of 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 the scope of everything that was covered by the second vatican council it blows every other council away. I mean, I would say that Trent and um, and and Vatican II are probably the two most comprehensive can- councils that we've had in the history of the church. Vatican I, if it hadn't been cut short, maybe it would have fit into this category, but it was cut short, so Trent and Vatican II. But there is a motive here. And remember, he's thinking in the same way that we've already kind of established that he's sympathetic to the views of the SSPX. Now let's look at the number of the next one.
0: I wasn't going to make that comment, but okay. I
1: am (laughs) making that number because this to them is the key to everything that's wrong with the church today. Number 666 in his catechism. What was the approach of the Second Vatican Council? This council's basic approach was partly determined by a shift from primacy being given to the content of the faith to the methods of its explanation and proclamation. Such priority given to, the, to method history, which is mutable and the so-called pastoral approach resulted in certain doctrinally unclear or ambiguous affirmations in the church's documents. This is almost a thesis statement for radical traditionalism I mean, unless you're a Sedevacantist or, you know, in some other, you know, cultish group. But this is basically the way that they would summarize what the Second Vatican Council was and what it said. So, you know, I smell a rat. Now, here's another one. You know, this, is, this, this also kind of uh, makes me think a little bit about um, Kwasniewski. But what are the most common errors about authority in the church? various forms of conciliarism limiting papal authority by the authority of bishops gathered in council he talks about gallicanism and and statism subjecting the authority of the pope and bishops to civil power but then he puts in magisterial positivism receiving every word of a living pope or bishop as inherently true good infallible and necessary to obey now that i don't know a single person who holds to that yet it yeah. is the straw man Mm-hmm. That is put together by Peter Kwasniewski, Kwasniewski and friends when they describe ultra, not ultramontanism, hyper papalism. I'm, I'm, I'm sensing that there's something going on here. I, I but this is obviously um, an attack on people who think that when the Pope teaches authoritatively. On matters of faith and morals, which notice this is not um anyway. This is uh it's ridiculous. Now, Protestantism, I think that his view is much closer to that, but that's that's a whole other story. Then we get into, into religious affairs. Number 560. Who are the Jews? And his definition is those who continue to observe certain aspects of the Mosaic law while rejecting the fulfillment while rejecting its fulfillment in the revelation of the true messiah jesus christ the incarnate son of god now i guess if stripped down to its bare bones but it it doesn't affirm um it's talking about observance rather than the jewish people the jewish religion um and this is hinting towards i would say anti-semitism Um, I didn't
0: imputing like an ill will or an understanding of something so that they can reject it. Yes. Guarantee you talk to anyone, they will not say, Oh, I'm obviously rejecting something.
1: It has nothing to do with their self understanding. And that's a good point. This actually reads a lot like what um, E. Michael Jones says. He suggests that Jewish, every Jewish person above the age of reason has made a conscientious rejection of christ and it's like so if you grow up in in the middle of brooklyn as an orthodox jew and everyone you know is jewish and your whole school is jewish and your parents are jewish and you're raised jewish like your identity is rooted in who you are is rooted in a repudiation no it's 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 rooted in an embrace of your culture it's it's rooted in your upbringing it's rooted in your family and your people um and your links to the holy land
0: yeah. All of these other things, any other religion, Christianity included, is not presented as an obvious truth that you know, it's like what is obvious is what you are raised in.
1: Yeah. And, um, and and so I don't think I included Buddhism and Hinduism. I think he equated them to paganism and and uh, demon worship and, and that sort of thing. But then um, Islam so here he uh these are these are a little bit smaller on the screen but hopefully you can see them number 207 through 209 uh the first question does the muslim religion adore the one true god his immediate answer is no he says the muslim religion rejects god's self revelation as a trinity and denies the divinity of jesus christ and he says that the adoration proposed in this religion cannot be true as every spirit that does not confess jesus is not from god and then he adds while an individual muslim may incidentally adore god as creator this would only be at the natural level according to man's capacity for knowledge of god um so then the follow-up is quoting i believe from uh, nostra etate in vatican II. Then Muslims do not adore the one and merciful God, together with us Catholics. And he goes, "No, Catholics consciously profess and adore one God in the Trinity and Trinity in Unity." Now, and then the, the next question is uh, two hundred nine: Is it true to say that Muslims hold the faith of Abraham? And he goes, "No, Abraham saw three and adored one and rejoiced in the vision of the future Redeemer." So I think what he's what he's trying to say is that Abraham was and pre-Christian Jews had an openness to the Trinity as if he can read their minds or, or that reflects their um, their understanding of it. And even though Muslims, they direct their worship towards the God of Abraham, towards the God that is worshipped by Christians and Jews, That's that's their intention. Somehow they're still worshiping a false god or a demon or or whatever else. I mean, I've I've seen this rhetoric. This is this goes against Nostra Aetate. Obviously, we have serious theological differences with Islam, but what we can all agree on is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of of Noah and 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 Adam, the biblical God. Yes, they have a distorted. In our, I mean, we would consider their view disordered or, or, or distorted or not, or maybe to put a better way, doesn't include the fullness of, of the Catholic understanding. But we can say the same thing about Pentecostals or, or you know, Protestants. Even half
0: of our, our own history, we yeah. didn't have the development or, you know, the inclusion of all of the truths that we're now trying to synthesize today and integrate today
1: and so, we, we needed to i mean we needed to uh define the trinity as a dogma for a reason it was because catholics were genuinely not sure you know that this is the an way it goes obvious
0: point going all yeah. the way back
1: so yeah. um now here i this is just a screenshot of the footnotes and i've highlighted three of them um footnote 49 for this confusing assertion see council of vatican II decree Unitatis redintegratio. Sorry, I was I didn't mm-hmm. practice that one. And then he says it was restated in the catechism. And then in number 50, <laughs> it's called a
0: fallacy of like special pleading or something. Yeah.
1: Well, and then and then right up front, you know, footnote 52, a regrettable affirmation of the catechism of the Catholic Church. And then the next one, a confusing claim of the catechism of the Catholic Church. So this, this goes beyond um, subtlety. This is actually mm-hmm. saying that the catechism and the documents of the council are screwed up or don't resemble the real faith. Um, if you look at this particular slide, for those who are watching, um, the the top footnote um, mentions the joint declaration on human fraternity uh, in Abu Dhabi from, from 2019. Well, he describes this as... a a papal heresy that needs to be corrected. And then footnote 55, he talks about, uh, Mm -hmm. he quotes from a a French Freemason and he's trying to um, equate Pope Francis's Fratelli Tutti, his view of of fraternity, human fraternity with the Freemasonic view. Um, In this particular presentation, I didn't even focus on the hits at Pope Francis. Like it's funny. It gives. Has a pope ever committed heresy? And it gives a. It gives the list. There was Honorius. There was Vigilius. There was Pope uh, John the Twenty Second, and then Pope Francis when he taught. You know, I mean, it's it's that bad. It's. I mean, it's really just. Um, you know, not only are those contested, but he's. I mean, it's 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 frightening, and that's my last slide. Um, so, thanks for viewing. Um, anyway.
0: Of a, a very brief overview on some initial glaring concerns. I remember watching those tweets and then just wondering because I've had other people praise this book to me, and I'm like, well, I know the name. I'm curious to see what what's inside it. So I think this is a valuable overview. Thank you for the slides because it gives us a sense of what they're trying to accomplish, what they hope they're doing. Yeah. I mean, they believe they're saving the church, and uh and yet that's that is a job this- exclusively retained to Christ and the Holy Spirit himself and, and um, this goes beyond
1: this goes beyond uh Pope Francis criticism. This right. is like if you're if you are a JP2 conservative who has problems with with Pope Francis and you've been critical of him the whole time, this book should offend you. This book should offend your faith. This is mm-hmm. uh scandalous to pious ears because it has explicit criticisms i even saw a criticism of pope benedict in there i didn't share that particular slide and i haven't read the whole thing so i I think there's going to be more but it's um it's pretty egregious so that's uh
0: well i think we'll be coming back to this topic um in the the coming weeks it's probably only going to pick up steam so well let's wrap thank you mike thank you for the debrief thank you friends for watching um links to the topics that are referenced are going to be in the description. Um, the conversation is brought to you from smartcatholics.com. It's our free online community for millennials, creators, and learners. You can join the private Where Peter Is group to ask questions, share insights, suggest topics for next time.
1: Yes, and uh, please visit Where Peter Is to read articles, listen to podcasts, and, uh, and to, to hear about what's going on in the church. And please support us on Patreon if you can.
0: Hit the like button and please subscribe to where Peter is so you never miss an episode of The Debrief.
1: God bless.